1: Welcome to the Bloomberg
0: PL Podcast. I'm Paul
1: Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Bramowitz.
0: Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
1: Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Very cool deal today in the betting space. DraftKings is going public in a three-way deal with gaming technology provider SB Tech and an acquisition fund founded by former hollywood executive jeff Sagansky that values a new firm at about 3.3 billion dollars we're very fortunate today to have jason roberts he is the ceo of DraftKings. He's season or bloomberg interactive broker studio jason thanks so much for joining us i know it's a busy day describe this deal you're not doing an ipo you're not being acquired tell us kind of how this really works
2: well thank you for having me and happy holidays to everybody um so This is a three-way merger of uh, DraftKings, SB Tech, which is one of the world's leading technology uh, risk management and trading operators. Um, They provide services to sportsbooks all over the world. Uh, And then a uh, SPAC company, special purpose acquisition company called Diamond Eagle. Uh, The way it works is Diamond Eagle has raised previously uh, $400 million in cash, and um, the way they did that is they went around to various shareholders and they told them the types of businesses they would be interested in doing a deal with. And number one on their list was a sports betting business. So, um, you know, really uh, the shareholders hopefully are, are excited about this. And um, once the deal closes, the company will be renamed DraftKings. It'll be publicly traded and uh, the cash that's there, as well as the pipe that we raised, uh, which is a little over $300 million. So, a pipe is a private investment? Yeah, so the pipe is exactly, it's a uh, it's a private investment that goes, it rolls into the public stock. Um, we had great groups participate, um, like Cap Research, yep, uh, Wellington, awesome. Franklin Templeton. Um, so that'll all roll into the uh, eventual close of the stock, uh, excuse me, close of the deal, at which point DraftKings will become a publicly traded stock.
1: Okay, so tell me about the sports betting business today. It's rapidly changing. We're getting states like New Jersey, so I'm seeing all these folks from New York driving through the Lincoln Tunnel placing their bets, I guess, and then driving them back. <laughs> Tell us about what's going on in the sports betting business right now.
2: Uh, well, right now, there's tremendous momentum uh, around legalization and regulation in the states. Uh, so just in the last year, several new states uh, have passed legislation. Several new states have launched products. DraftKings ourselves uh, launched our online sports book um, last year in New Jersey. But just in the last few months, we've launched West Virginia Uh, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Um, New Hampshire will be hopefully coming soon. So uh, a lot of great momentum behind states, you know, quickly uh, adopting this now that the Supreme Court, uh, you know, about a year and a half ago lifted the federal ban.
1: So why isn't there? But there, there isn't a federal legalization of sports betting. Right. And why isn't
2: there one? There's actually a very interesting legal history. I'm not a lawyer, but uh, (laughs) I find it fascinating. So there's this law called PASPA, Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act, and it never said sports betting is illegal. That's why you could always go to Vegas and other parts of Nevada and bet on sports. It just said no new states can legalize. No new states can add sports betting to to make it legal. So, um, you know, that stood in place for... About 25 or so years and um, you know New Jersey tried to legalize sports betting that law was used to, to stop them uh, they took it all the way up and eventually won in the Supreme Court with you know again I'm not a lawyer but my understanding was that you know the the ruling was that the federal government could choose to make anything legal or illegal that they want to but they couldn't tell the states what to to make their own laws so um, it was kind of a unique law I don't think there's anything else out there like it so uh, not that I you know, uh, from the Supreme Court's perspective, um, I I don't think they were very interested in sports betting. I think it was much more of a states versus federal rights question.
1: Tell us about the business now as more and more states legalize sports betting, Like like when New Jersey did it. How big of a business has it become? It seems like it would be big. I hear stories that's revitalized, you know, some of the casinos down in Atlantic City and so on, just driving traffic, like on a Sunday morning to watch football.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's been, you know, by all accounts, a huge success in New Jersey uh, and, you know, other states, I think, are seeing promising early results as well. Uh, Everything is kind of up. It's not just sports betting. Um, As you mentioned, the whole industry, uh, the brick and mortar casinos are up. The lottery is up. uh, Everything is up. So I think it's brought a lot of great attention to the state and uh, hopefully we'll see more states follow. Talk to us about
1: the competitive landscape, because um, I know DraftKings, you had a competitor FanDuel, I think, that was recently acquired. T- talk to us about the competitive landscape. Who do you guys compete against?
2: Well, FanDuel is definitely our chief competitor. Um, there's several others, mostly, uh, including FanDuel, was bought by a, uh, an Irish company. So most, most of them come from Europe, a few from Australia, but really, you know, it's an interesting industry because... Uh, due to obviously not having legal options in, in much of the U.S., there weren't really any big companies homegrown here. Right. We're kind of the, the only contender for that. Um, and you know, obviously, we started with fantasy sports, so it was uh, sort of a, a back, uh, you know, a little bit of a sideways way to get to here. But most of the traditional companies in this space were, were built in Europe. A lot of them are in the U.K. Um, So, you know, I think a lot of our competition, at least in the near term, will be from Europe. And then, you know, certainly the brick and mortar casinos are are going to compete. But um, I think they view it a lot more as a driver of traffic for at least the retail side. Uh, And then there's a handful that are very focused online as well.
1: Are you surprised that the professional sports leagues like the NFL have kind of dropped their longstanding, you know, just really trying to keep betting away and gambling away?
2: uh you know I'm surprised how quickly and and how um you know it's been all of them but I'm not surprised this is where things landed it's you know every every everyone sort of follows the times and I think, you know, as years have gone on, sports betting has been something that's been demystified a lot. I think being able to do it online and on mobile actually significantly increases uh, the NFL and other sports leagues' ability to monitor and protect against integrity issues. I think, you know, having it be trackable on mobile makes a huge difference for that. Uh, and, you know, I think they understand that this is what the fan of future wants, and it's going to be an important engagement tool for them, and, uh, you know, at the end, they're about engaging their fans, and that's what makes them great. Yep, it's interesting. That what you know, I
1: know as you notice as well. But um, you know, the Mickey Mouse Company that also owns ESPN now. Every time they give you a, a schedule, it's always the line, the over/under, and that's something that I just didn't think we'd see. Uh, you know, certainly from some of the uh, the big mainstream uh, sports uh, like ESPN, but everybody's embracing it. It's, a, it's really interesting. Jason Robbins, uh, CEO of DraftKings. Thanks so much for stopping by. I know you had a busy day today. Congratulations on your tra- transaction. Very interesting to see the growth of the sports betting. Uh, in this country and again there's stories or legion of you know the folks in the, the neighboring states to uh, New Jersey driving in placing their bets uh, and then heading out uh, very interesting so we'll have to see how this plays out. Big news at Boeing today. A management change at the top. The existing CEO out. A new CEO coming from the board of directors takes charge here. The stock is up about 2% on the news. George Ferguson, senior aerospace defense and airlines analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. So George, the market seems to like this change. Was it expected or is this kind of a shock?
3: I think this is a, a bit of a shock, at least the timetable was. I think we all thought Dennis uh, was under pressure, and uh, but I think a lot of people thought the, he would get the max returned to, to service before he went. So I think we're a, a little bit uh, surprised to see it happen here right at the end of the year, although this is the classic time to do, make big moves like this.
1: So, George, the the new CEO, David Calhoun, who had served as chairman since October, will replace uh, Muhlenberg as CEO and president on January 13th. Um, what do we know about this new CEO, David Calhoun? Well, I think,
3: interestingly,
1: uh, he has been v- very
3: much uh, on the sidelines and quiet until a, a few, you know, like a month ago, a month and a half ago when he came forward and started giving interviews. So you could kind of see him at that point warming up in the wings. He comes out of GE, comes out of Caterpillar, uh, he's come, comes out of the investment world. So I think he's got a lot of strong experience. The interviews I've seen with him, he's a, he's a pretty good communicator. And I think a lot of what he needs to do here though is, uh, put a fresh face on this and approach the constituencies, you know, with uh, with sort of clarity um, and cooperation. So I think uh, you know, even just getting a, a new face here helps as well. But he looks very well, you know, very well prepared for this.
1: So George, let's try to put his to-do list uh, together for January thirteenth, his first day. What do you think the first phone call he makes or the first visit he makes?
3: I think he's going to the FAA. As okay. Soon as possible. <laughs> I think it's it's, it's his to-do list is get the max back in the air, get the max back in the air, get the max back in the air.
1: So, I mean, give us a sense of where we are in the process. Um, You know, my understanding is there is a software fix that has been delivered, I think, to some extent, maybe tested to some extent. So where are we in the process and what what do you think is kind of holding things up?
3: I think the the ball is um, in the FAA's. Court, but I mean that's probably not the right way to say it. Given Boeing wants to be involved all along the process, but I think the MAX software is fixed. Uh, we hear reports from the field of pilots uh, testing it in simulators, and they seem they say it behaves as they would expect. So I think where we are now is we have to the, the FAA has to approve the changes to that MAX software, to that MCAS software, anti-stall software, as well as approve whatever training regime needs to be put in place for this new, for this change to the software. And I think that's what we heard from the FAA administrator a couple weeks ago, where he said, hey, it's going to take us to at least mid-February to finish up our review of the airplane. And I think this is about engaging the FAA, making sure they have everything they need to get that review done as, you know, as succinctly as possible.
1: Let's assume, um, which I know is not a good, <laughs> a safe assumption always, but let's assume they do get FAA approval sometime in the, in the first quarter. It, my sense is planes are scattered all over the country. They're in storage all over the country. I've seen them parked in employee parking lots. What's the time frame, do you think, from approval to really getting this thing in commercial uh, you know, ro- rotation with the airlines?
3: Yeah, so definitely the scarier thing or the more challenging thing is that the longer the max is delayed and the longer airplanes sit, the harder it is to get them back into the into the fleets and flying the longer it takes. And so, you know, we already saw United push everything out to June. Right? The challenge with airlines, too, is they have to put a schedule out and then start to sell tickets for the schedule. They don't want to significantly count in an airplane before they know it's going to be ready to fly. So the the way we really see it right now is it looks like, Um, there'll be at least some flow starting to move to U.S. airlines by by the very beginning of summer flying season, right? It needs to flow to the airline, and the airline needs to get the pilots trained and into the cockpit, too, so that it, it doesn't... The airplane doesn't go back into service on day one. We think there's going to be some flow back to the U.S. airlines by summer, but we don't think it's going to be all the airplanes that they originally thought they were going to get delivered. So we think that if you're a flyer this summer, you may end up paying more than you'd, you'd – uh, well, we always pay more than we hope for, but more than you would have had the MAX been back into fleets. And it looks to us like it's starting to slip for getting much of anything back to the European carriers that count on the max. By summer flying season, so Europe may have even better fare, uh, fares than we expected for this summer, which would, which would be a positive for airlines in both the U.S. and in Europe.
1: Yeah, when you say better, you're doing it from the perspective of the airlines, not the consumer. Let's be clear about that. All right, George Ferguson, thanks very much. We appreciate your comments here. George is a senior aerospace defense and airlines analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence joining us on the phone. Uh, he always has great color on the aerospace companies and the airlines. That whole supply chain George covers and gives us a good sense here In Boeing here. Uh, probably a change that, you know, a lot of investors are disjudging by the Up, pop in the stock here saying had to be made you had to get a new face of the company here particularly uh, as you uh, are dealing with the FAA which as George Ferguson suggested is kind of the critical linchpin uh, to getting the max up in the air you've got to get the FAA on board you've got to work closely with the FAA and perhaps this new CEO can get that done
4: success is more than the final destination it's a path you take one step at a time Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: Well, as we've been talking about this morning 2019 has been a heck of a year for financial markets returns really stellar particularly when you consider the the depths we were back almost a year ago today christmas eve last year when the market was down about 20 percent of course the question is now it's 2020 what have you done for me lately so what are we going to do next year david garrity chief market strategist uh from Laidlaw and company also a partner at bt block he joins us here in a bloomberg interactive broker studio David, so again, 2019, I think, snuck up on some people in terms of the performance. Even here in the last you know, several weeks, several months, uh, the upside is really, I think, snuck up on some people. How do you think the, we should be positioned for next year in terms of maybe our expectations for returns?
5: While in the markets, markets people like to focus on the economics i think 2020 is a year of politics given the u.s general election given obviously the impeachment <clears throat> trial which is going to be in the offing uh, and our expectation is that you know the politics and the uncertainties associated with that coupled with the fact of a you know perhaps six-tenths of a percentage point hit to U.S. GDP growth from the shutdown on the 737 max, probably give us a first half of the year, which is probably flat to possibly down. And we think that more of the returns for the year are going to be concentrated in the back half of the year, most likely in the form of a relief rally around the U.S. presidential election in November. So in this respect, coming out of 2019, our advice to investors is to certainly be very, very selective. Uh, we do think that we're still in an environment here where the long end of the Treasury curve is going to come in, probably from about the 1.92% level on the 10-year, maybe to about one and a quarter, one and a half. Wow. Uh, but we don't think necessarily that the Fed's in a position yet to cut rates. Although I think that that's still going to be something to possibly support the market going into the election, to the extent that things slow. Even if the data,
1: and uh, you know, Lisa and I, we argue about this all the time. She rejects, uh, to use her word, uh, my contention that maybe it, the data is coming, economic data is coming in better than expected. The consumer continues to be strong. We see stabilization in manufacturing and business investment. The trade deal gets cleaned up. There might be an argument to be made that this Fed could actually hike in 2020. Any risk to that, or is it just because it's an election year, you're just not going to see that?
5: Well, I mean, I think there's a strange set of dynamics here in terms of how the current administration is doing trade policy. And, and the focus for trade policy with the current administration wasn't just China. I mean, there's been more of a drum beating with respect to the European Union, the EU. And if we look at monetary policy in the EU, they really are sort of the locus globally with yep. regards to negative interest rates. And you've seen the Swedish central bank, the Riksbank, pull back yeah. yep. <coughs> within the... The recent two weeks, moving off of a five year experiment with negative interest rates, you know, obviously we may see this start to replicate itself more broadly across the EU. And much as the EU, in our view, led the Fed to cut rates in the second half of 2019, to the extent that the EU under Christian Lagarde of the ECB under yep. Christian Lagarde uh, decides to raise rates, I think the Fed is left in a situation where they have to follow.
1: Yeah, and that would—that is not discounted. Would you agree? I mean, it's- I don't
5: think it's discounted, but I also think at the same time that the ECB is going to have a difficult time, based on the economics of what's going on within the EU around Brexit, uh, in in having an environment where they could consider actually tightening monetary policy, and maybe it only might be because the U.S. administration says that negative interest rates are a way of basically propping up an unfair trade advantage. But, right. you know, there hasn't been a trade situation where the current administration has not seen right. an unfair advantage. <laughs> exactly.
1: Do you anticipate uh, a phase one deal getting signed actually on a piece of paper at some point uh, in the near to intermediate term?
5: Uh, it will be off-rumored, but seldom seen. Right. <laughs> uh, and our view is... Possibly not until sometime in 2020, but that doesn't mean that uh, certain persons who are running for re-election won't be running around throwing out tweets and right. rumors about it. But the substance, I think, is going to be uh, somewhat short.
1: So, all right, we're thinking about 2020. Um, you know, people a lot have their 2020 outlooks and sectors and so on and so forth. It seems to me as we look back onto 2019, we had periods where we were the market seemed to be you know, kind of rotating out of the cyclicals, maybe into the more defensive utilities, consumer staples. But then it seems like maybe we've kind of rotated back to a little bit more growth, a little bit more risk. What are the sectors that you think people should be focusing on for 2020?
5: Well, I think on the one hand, I mean, one of the major themes in terms of this market um, from the bottoms back in March of 2009 had been tech, tech and more tech. Right. And if you wanted to build wealth, you basically bought large cap U.S. tech. Um, The question is, as we look at the election process, as we look at how things have evolved, not just on the federal level, but also on the state level and also overseas, greater rise in terms of regulation, which is going to impose more in the way of costs uh, and possibly have slower revenue growth uh, for these names. So, you know, while this clearly has been the major wealth generator uh, over the past decade, the question is, can we rely upon tech to continue to provide the same type of returns going into 2020? And I would argue it may be time to pull back. Um, granted, there've been concerns looking at a sector basis as to what's gonna happen around healthcare policy, but we may actually end up as we get greater clarity around the political situation to see um, the underlying secular dynamics in terms of demographic profile changes, aging, uh, driving greater demand in the, in the healthcare sector, and then as a result, healthcare may not be a bad place to consider uh, as things become clearer. Right. In so 2020. I guess
1: in twenty, obviously the issue with healthcare has historically been really over the last several years, but certainly going into this election cycle is just kind of the headline risk, the policy risk. The you know the Elizabeth Warren, the you know the Medicare for All type of thing. Is that something that the valuations? They're they're paying you for that risk you're taking, do you think?
5: I I think in some respects we've already had some of those risks discounted in the market, but I would say simply if we look at 2020, it's a year when technology or the tech sector goes into the regulatory woodshed and possibly the healthcare sector comes out.
1: It's interesting. I'm looking at the uh, NYSE FANG index up about 40% this year alone, up about 47% on a trailing 12-month basis. And uh, you're right. I think the big issue for a lot of investors is The story's great, the tech story writ large is great, but that regulatory risk hasn't really been with the US tech stocks ever, arguably, but maybe it's starting to raise its head. So 2020, we're gonna see more federal regulation of some of the tech sector. That is the big, I think, issue for tech investors.
5: And I think the pressure is, is that as Bloomberg has highlighted in some of its stories, is that federal authorities are moving because they don't necessarily want to get ahead of what's going on at a state level, particularly in California. Right. They don't want state regulation to suddenly open up a situation where you have a balkanized regulatory environment. They want to assert federal authority.
1: Real quick, energy. Well, I mean, in terms of... Talk about a high risk, high return, potentially. The
5: favorite favorite exogenous shock scenario for any... Recession has always been a spike in oil prices. And given the dynamics unfolding in the Mideast, uh, we've already had trouble in the Strait of Hormuz yep. earlier this year with Iran and uh, the Persian Gulf states and Saudi Arabia. Um, I, I think going into an election, sometimes there's nothing better for people to do than to, to declare a war. Um, <laughs> right, but exactly. I don't yep. necessarily want to no. want to call you know those in the office now as warmongers, but right. you know, things don't look good.
1: Yep, exactly. All right, energy, always, it's not for the faint of heart, certainly. David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist, just for Laidlaw long company and partner at BT Block giving us his thoughts on the market after what's been a uh, fantastic year for uh, most asset classes in 2019 both equity fixed income uh, several of the commodities also posting strong gains the question is how are you positioned for 2020 another edition of the star wars series is out star wars the rise of skywalker dropped uh, i guess uh, last week took in 175 million dollars in its opening weekend. That's a big number, but it's lower than what they had done previously. So the question is, what's going on with the Star Wars saga and for the Walt Disney Company? To do that, we went out and found a couple of local fanboys that we all know. Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Ira Jersey, Chief US Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's actually our man. On the scene at a local theater, getting ready to go in and see this, the show. So, Ira, let's start with you. What are your expectations for the rise of Skywalker?
6: Yeah, so just from some people that I've talked to coming out of the theater here in Garner, North Carolina, I'm at a Regal theater. Um, they were they were saying that that you know kids like it. So so people who didn't grow up in the uh, 70s and 80s on Star Wars seem to have really enjoyed this show. Uh, the parents seem to be a little bit more sanguine about it, saying it's okay. So um, so, so I, I think I'm going to go in with an open mind, and hopefully I'll, I'll think it's better than, than the last film, which Eric and I, I know, uh, neither of us particularly enjoyed. All
1: right, so Eric, let, let, let's go to that. This is a long-running series. I don't even know how many episodes we're up to yet. There was one, two, three, then it was four, three, two. I don't know how they did it all. But give us a sense of kind of, as a
7: fanboy, how is Star Wars resonating with you? Right. So when I went to see Force Awakens, I liked it. I liked the new characters, uh, uh, Poe and Finn and Ray. I thought it was great. The ending where she goes to give the lightsaber to Luke Skywalker, and you see Mark Hamill there, and he's very serious, and it ends. And I was jazzed for the next one. And then (laughs) to think he just throws it over his shoulder like he doesn't care, and Luke Skywalker has turned into some, like, cranky uh, recluse. Um, you know, even Mark Hamill said, that's not my Luke Skywalker. So the biggest problem with The Last Jedi is they ripped the heart out of the whole franchise, which is Luke Skywalker, and stomped on it right in front of you <laughs> and then expected you to like it. I mean, that's the biggest problem. Plus, there were all kind of plot holes. They really, um, the uh, Ray uh, uh, Poe, and Finn storylines, I thought they did worse in The Last Jedi. So I thought J.J. Abram- Abrams was handed a pretty crappy hand uh, from The Last Jedi and I'm I'm guessing he probably did the best he could with it and so I also am looking forward to seeing it but again I, I'm just a little down on the whole franchise after Last Jedi. Ripped the heart out so interesting so
1: Ira hopefully your heart wasn't ripped out by the last uh, episode <laughs> give us your sense of again among the fanboys the passions run really high here what is your sense of you know what Disney has done with this franchise?
6: Well, I, I think among kind of the OG uh, Star Wars folks like Eric and I, I I think there is a lot of disappointment I think the you know episode 8 the the, uh, the last Jedi was disappointing I mean I was as disappointed as anyone um, but I think I think that the thing that Disney is trying to go for it seems to me is more of the superhero type of vibe and and you know that doesn't necessarily work with Star Wars and if you know this Particular movie, I think, resonates with maybe younger kids who, you know, didn't look up to Luke Skywalker as the epitome of the good guy in their movies. And, and, you know, you always expected him to save the day. Um, So so I think that 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 might not hurt Disney all that much if... They can get all the merchandising and, uh, and, and a lot of video games. So just in, in the theater, actually uh, getting my seat, talking to someone, and, and the, the, the boy said that he liked the new video games. So maybe it's not the merchandise like the you know dolls and stuff like that that, that you're going to see this time, but it's going to be things like the video games and those other offshoots and, and maybe some of the, the Disney Plus uh, characters, because The Mandalorian, for example, even among the OG Star Wars people that I've talked to, really enjoy that particular show. Um, and uh, and so so perhaps it's it's the franchise as a whole isn't going to be uh, isn't going to be drawn down. But even if you know the end of the Skywalker series is a little bit of a dud. So Eric,
1: give us a sense of do you think Disney can successfully, from your perspective, you know, kind of make that balance between the hardcore old school Star Wars fan and maybe the newer fan?
7: Yeah, it probably can be done. I, I, like Ira, I just think the Skywalker, that whole uh, line of movies, is just been a little roughed up. Uh, the merchandise, just I can see it in Walmart. It's on clearance. Nobody wants to buy it. Uh, my eight-year-old, um, he doesn't really want it, but back when I showed him the original three, uh, he was into it. He wanted a lightsaber just like every other kid. Right. Um, so I don't know how to get that magic back. I'm sure with a lot of money, they're still gonna make money because they're gonna get a lot of uh, good actors and a lot of special effects. Um, But I would just try something new. I would go to some new uh, area, some new Star Wars um, paradigm, and, um, you know, try to make it work. Uh, But the Luke Skywalker uh, series, I think, was just um, brutalized by Rian Johnson. Brutalized by Rian
6: Yeah, I I, I, I agree with that, and I think, you know, one of the other big issues that I think that movie had um, was, was obviously story and plot, like Eric said, but it also came off of one of the best movies in the franchise, in my opinion, in Rogue One. Rogue One was a super solid movie. It had no loose ends. It, you know, introduced the, the character of Darth Vader in a brand new way that you really always wanted to see. And then you had the, and then you had Episode Eight, The Last Jedi. And it just, you know, compared to Rogue One, it just didn't compare. And I think that that was also a big disappointment because everyone went in. Like I went in with these massive expectations, given how great Rogue One was. And then you know, you see this, this really. You know bomb of a movie in, in a lot of our opinion, and then you know and then solo, which was a good movie, followed and it didn't do well uh, uh, in in the theaters and I think primarily because not because you know Star Wars fans would go see a new Star Wars movie once a month, no problem if they were good movies and and so solo I think had a lot of the backlash uh, from the, from episode eight um, you know and and that's where I think Disney has to kind of you know rejuvenate itself and and I think you know hopefully this movie i I'm, I'm going to see it in three hours I'll know. Uh, You know, is this movie kind of worth it? And and the ending that the Star Wars franchise deserves.
1: All right. Well, maybe we'll chat with you when you're
7: done seeing it. Eric? Just one more point, which is after The Last Jedi, a lot of fans reacted. And Disney kind of came out and said, you guys are just not woke enough. You don't understand where we're going with this. (laughs) And I didn't like that. They insulted the fans for not liking it. But like Ira said, Rogue One has a female lead. We all loved it. That was a great movie, it just has to be a good movie and you have to care about the characters and, and the storylines have to make sense, that's all. It's not that rocket right. science.
1: All right. All right. We had the fanboys. Uh, Ira Jersey, enjoy the show. Uh, hope you have a good time. We'll, we'll look forward to hearing your review afterwards. Iris, is the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Eric Balchun, a Senior ETF Analyst and Star Wars fanboy, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. A couple of numbers here for you. Um, $175 million in box office. That's ahead of Disney's $160 million projection, but it's below what uh, the consensus was for about $183 uh, million. And I guess for a lot of people looking at the series and looking at the franchise from disney's perspective it was one of the lower openings of the recent so the question is is there a little bit of star wars fatigue sitting in uh, we'll have to see thanks for listening to the bloomberg PL podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm paul sweeney i'm on twitter at pt Sweeney.
0: i'm lisa abramowitz i'm on twitter at lisa abramowitz one before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide on bloomberg radio